You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click donate. We're now nearing the season of Easter, and let's not forget that Jesus was crucified by Rome, not because he was starting a new religion, but because his political teachings on justice for the oppressed threatened to upset the status quo underlying the Pax Romana. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery and this is episode 364. Our title this week is The Politics of Jesus. Our reading this week is from Luke's telling of the Jesus story. It's in Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, "'Greetings, you are highly favored.'" The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father's David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And again, that's Luke 1, 26 through 38. The first thing that stands out to me about Luke's telling of the Jesus story is how it differs uh, from Matthew's telling. Matthew and 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 Luke are the only ones that have these uh, birth or infancy narratives about Jesus. And the message from heaven uh, comes uh, 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 to Nazareth rather than to Bethlehem. And Joseph is the recipient in Matthew's version, but in Luke, Mary's the recipient. Uh, and, and Luke has already patterned one pregnancy so far after the, the pregnancy stories of other matriarchs in Hebrew folklore. For Luke, Elizabeth, the, the mother of John the Baptist, she she is a contemporary Sarah, like found in Genesis 17 through 18, or, or Hannah in 1 Samuel one through two. But Mary's conception is quite different. Mary is not past childbearing age like Elizabeth or the other women of the Jewish stories. Her story is is not a miracle after the birthing time of life has passed. Mary is young and and, and independent of men and and quite capable of of bearing children. And she is at the beginning of her life journey. Her, Her conception uh, will be in Luke's story a miracle of a of quite a different nature, and the point 
shouldn't be lost here. Uh, miraculous conception, it does exist in Jewish tradition. Divine conception is a Roman cultural tradition. And Luke's story will repeat the point that the Jesus of this story should be compared and contrasted with Caesar and Roman social values. Not one conception in Jewish history fits Luke's description of how Mary conceived Jesus. But in Rome, the story of, of, of a virgin conceiving and giving birth to the Son of God, that had a significant political context. The most well-known Roman story of divine conception was Caesar Augustus. In the Lies of the Caesars, Suetonius cites uh, discourses of the gods, by, uh, and uh, he, he, he quotes, when Atia had come in the middle of the night to the solemn service of Apollo. She had her litter set down in the temple and fell asleep, while the rest of the matrons also slept. On a sudden, a serpent, and that's supposed to be Apollo, or, 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 or Apollo in the form of a serpent, glided up to her and shortly went away. When she woke, she purified herself as if after the embraces of her husband... And at once there appeared on her body a mark in colors like a serpent, and she could never get rid of it. So the presently, so that presently, she ceased ever to go to the public baths. In the tenth month after that, Augustus was born and was therefore regarded as the son of Apollo. And I'll put the reference to that in this week's uh, e-site. But many scholars believe the divine Caesar Augustus's conception story was patterned after Alexander the Great's conception, uh, a conception legend, as well as those of, of like the Roman general uh, Scipio uh, Africans. He was the imperial conqueror of the Car uh, Carthaginians. And in, the Greek, in these Greco-Roman stories of divine conceptions, Male gods impregnate human women to bear great leaders or, or conquerors. And these types of stories, these legends, were quite common. So it appears that Luke's divine conception of Jesus with the Spirit of God coming upon Mary in Luke 135, that lays the foundation in Luke's version of the Jesus story for concluding that Jesus was at least lays the foundation for, for, for coming to the conclusion that Jesus was superior to Caesar. Jesus had to have a birth that was comparable to Caesar's in order for Jesus to at least start on the same footing. And that world didn't think conception by human-divine interaction was impossible. So Luke's telling of the Jesus story, again, it had to begin on equal footing with Caesar's. Consider the story of Jesus's birth through these political lenses, not, not modern scientific ones. Luke contrasts the politics of Jesus with the politics of Rome. Both Jesus and Caesar were referred to as the Son of God. Both were referred to as the Savior of the world. Both Jesus and Caesar were titled as Lord. And Luke's listeners, they would, uh, they'd have to decide which peace was genuine, which peace was lasting, and which peace was life-giving. The, the Pax Romana from, from Caesar and his armies and his threats 
or the peace that's found in following the teachings of Jesus. Roman peace, remember, it came through military conquering and then the imposed terror of threat toward anyone who would uh, disrupt Rome's peace. Jesus's peace, on the other hand, came through a distributive justice where no one had too much while others didn't have enough and everyone, uh, like it says in Micah 4.4, sat under their own vine or under their own fig tree. We're now nearing the season of Easter. And let's not forget that Jesus was crucified by Rome, not because he was starting a new religion, but because his political teachings on justice for the oppressed, for the marginalized and the disenfranchised, threatened to upset the status quo underlying the Pax Romana. His audience was growing, and Rome had to silence his voice. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, offer consistent political comparisons between Jesus' vision for human society or, or God's just future and the status quo of the society that Jesus found himself in instead. And this makes me wonder how our own contemporary society's political goals, how they would fare if we compared and contrasted the values of the American dream with the values that we find in the Jesus story. How does imprisoning children on the southern border or anywhere else in the country compare with Jesus's vision of a world where no one is illegal? Or how does forgiving student loan debt, how does that compare with Jesus's vision for a world where, where all debts are canceled? How does universal universal health care or, or health care as a human right, how does that compare with Jesus's life of, of healing those on the margins of his society? How does eliminating poverty or, or closing the vast wealth gap that, that exists between the classes and the races, how does that compare with Jesus's gospel of the kingdom that belongs to the poor? How, how do reparations for America's heritage of slavery and genocide compare with Jesus's call for those with, with ill-gotten wealth to sell everything and to give the proceeds to those that they had previously exploited? How do police reforms or, or even abolition compare to Jesus's story where the central figure was a victim of state brutality himself? Do the values of the Jesus story offer us something better today than the status quo that the privileged and the elite, the elite still desperately hold on to? And I don't mean that our society should become Christian. Christianity has proven unsafe when it comes to protecting vulnerable human populations from harm. I think of women, people of color, LGBTQ people, and many others have been harmed and their stories have yet to be listened to in many sectors of Christianity today. Even the sacred text of Christianity has been too vulnerable to abuse by those with power and prejudice and bigotry. The recent murders in Atlanta, the Atlanta spas, are just yet another sad example. And sadly, white and or colonial Christianity is the only form of the faith that most of the world has been touched by. Whatever one's interpretation of, of Christianity's sacred text, the voices of those who have been harmed are, are still needed to ensure that our interpretation 
interpretations are genuinely life-affirming and life-giving. If Luke could compare Roman economics, political, and social policy with with Jesus's teachings, then certainly we can do so with economic, political, and social policies in our time. And if we see progressive social movements resonate with the values that we find in the Jesus story, then certainly all of us who claim that story as the heart of our faith, uh, our faith tradition, could uh, uh, check ourselves. We could choose to be last in line to oppose those progressive visions for American society rather than being among the loudest opponents of distributively just change. And there are exceptions to this pattern. I realize that. It burdens me that they're merely exceptions. Support for progressive movements that resonate with Jesus's distributively just economic, political, and social values could be the rule for Jesus followers today if we would choose it. And and conscious choices are exactly what it will take. Heart group application this week, number one, share something that spoke to you from this week's e-site or this podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, what comparisons and contrasts can you make with Jesus's teachings and uh, current discussions in your own society regarding how we uh, distribute resources and power and share that with your group. And then number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home for everyone. Thanks for checking in with us today right where you are. Remember, keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.